Hi, I'm Rick Atkins, pastor here at CFCC. Welcome. We hope you enjoy this sermon and that God uses it to grow you in your relationship with Him. Before we get started, our goal is not to replace your investment in a local church with online content. We were made for community. We want to encourage you to engage in a local church with your gifts. See, when the people of God invest in the community of God, they experience the transformative power of God. And that is our hope and prayer for you. Again, thanks for joining us and we hope you enjoy the sermon. Before we get into things this morning, on your chairs when you came in, you should have a prayer guide, a note card that looks like this, and a pen. If there are not enough note cards and pens for everybody in your row, if you would just raise your hand and hold it up. We've got some people who want to make sure that everybody has note card and pen. We'll come back to those at the end. We'll just keep them up until they find you and get you that. <clears throat> Independence is one of the core values of our society and one of the chief idols of our culture. And perhaps, at times, our love and value of independence can be the thing that hinders our relationship with God the most. So this week we're continuing in our series, The Kingdom is Near. We're studying through the book of Nehemiah. So if you've got a Bible or a Bible app, we are going to be in Nehemiah chapter 1, starting in verse 5. Picking up where Pastor Rick left off last week where we met Nehemiah, who is the cupbearer for the king of Persia, King Artaxerxes. Before Nehemiah, we see a guy named Ezra, who you might know from the book called Ezra. Ezra is a prophet who leads a group of people from, of Israelites back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple of God. Not long after that is when we see the book of Nehemiah. It begins with Nehemiah receiving word that while the temple of God has been rebuilt in Jerusalem, the people of God are still suffering because they didn't rebuild the walls. And when Nehemiah hears this, he weeps. He mourns, he fasts, he devotes himself to prayer day and night. That is how passionate Nehemiah is about the kingdom of God. That when he learned that the work of God had gone unfinished, he mourned for days. He stopped what he was doing, he stopped eating, and he devoted himself to prayer. Church, when was the last time you, out of your love for the kingdom of God, skipped a meal to devote yourself to praying for its advancement. What if we had a heart like Nehemiah? What if we, as the people of God, cared so much for the mission and the work of God that the thought that there was more to be done, that the realization that it had gone unfinished, that there's still stuff to do, what if that kept us up at night? When you love God, you will be passionate about His kingdom and his glory. See, as a church, we're going into a season of preparation, a season of prayer, and a season of growth as we get ourselves ready for the work that we believe God is going to do in us and through us. And so over the next few months, you're going to hear us talk about a kingdom campaign and our vision and plans to kind of build out our property. And I want to be really clear. The kingdom that we want to build is not our kingdom. It's his kingdom. Not because he needs us, 
but because we want to be a part of what he's doing, because we want to participate in the work of God. And that when God moves, we want to be a place that moves with him and grows in him, that we might experience more of him. Church, moves that matter, moves that really make a change, that are truly impactful, they rarely begin with action. They begin with an idea, with a dream, with a vision, not of what is, but of what could be. And it starts as this little spark, and it grows into a roaring fire. Here's our dream. We want to see more people come to Jesus. We want to see more people grow in Jesus. We want to see more of the people of God engaging in the mission of God for the glory of God. We want to see the church that belongs to Jesus be all about Jesus and all for Jesus. And what that means is that we as a people have to practice setting aside our differences, setting aside the pettiness of our preferences, setting aside all the things that we think that we sh it should be, setting aside ourselves our old hurts, the baggage that we carry from previous experiences in our lives, we set aside ourselves that we can focus all that we have and all that we are on the person and the work of Jesus. We want to be a place that, see, that administers more grace, more love, more hope, more joy, and more peace to the people around us. We want to see people experience freedom from their addictions, freedom from their sin. We want to see people healed. We want to see marriages restored, relationships reconciled, needs met, and lives changed by the gospel of Jesus. We want to see God move all around us, transforming hearts, changing lives, reshaping the community that we live in. We want to be a part of what God is doing. This last week, there's a couple that came in. I have a conversation. They were struggling with some things. They were looking for guidance. They didn't come here looking for Jesus. But while they were here, they surrendered their lives to him. They're here this morning with their families. Yeah, come on. Look. They're here this morning with their family taking the first step in their journey with Jesus. And if that's not something that we're going to get excited about, I have to ask, what are we doing here? This is the reason that we exist, to see lives changed by the gospel, to see hearts transformed by the work of Jesus. And church, we want to see more of it. That is what we're looking to do. That's what all of this is about. We want to see more of the move of God, more of the power of God, more of the transformation that only God can bring. We want to be a people with an, an unquenchable thirst for the presence of God, with a hunger for more of him that cannot be sated, because we want to be a people that build the kingdom of God. And that begins with prayer. So last week, we saw the events that led Nehemiah to pray. This week, we're going to see what Nehemiah prays for. So Nehemiah, chapter 1, verse 5. And I said, 
O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commands. I want to point something out here. This is not the first nor will it be the last time that the Bible draws an exact parallel between loving God and obeying his commands. It's important for us to understand this because we live in a society that says, oh, I love Jesus, I love God, but I'm going to do whatever I want. Nope. Not how it works. You cannot love God and not follow the commands of God. They are connected, linked inseparably. Not that we will ever be perfect in our obedience or pursuit of his commands, but that we will always have a desire to obey and follow those commands. So Nehemiah opens his prayer. One of the things that I love about the Bible is when it tells us to pray, it doesn't just say, hey, you should pray, figure it out. It lists prayers. It records prayers that these different people of faith have prayed so that we can see the example that they set for us. And if you look at how Nehemiah prays, if you go through and you do a search of all the different prayers that are recorded in Scripture and you look at how they begin, they almost always have the same ingredient at the start. They begin with a recognition of who God is. Nehemiah starts by reminding himself who he's talking to. This is one of the most important things we do when we pray. Because it's easy for us to forget that God is not a wish-granting genie in the sky who exists to make your life happier, healthier, wealthier, and better. Do whatever you want. He is not some Mr. Fix-It that we go to when we want something or we need something. Yes, we do take our requests to God. Yes, we do bring our needs to Him. But that should not be the majority of our prayer time. That should be a small part of it. What we need to remember, church is that we are his servants, not the other way around. Biblical prayers start with God, end with God, and are centered around God. Whereas our prayers often start with ourselves, end with ourselves, and are centered around ourselves. Like when you look at your prayer life, ask yourself, if I didn't mention myself, would I have said anything other than dear Lord? Nehemiah demonstrates in his prayer that he has an intimate knowledge of God. And this is what a lot of us, a lot of Christians are missing. Because we have neglected his word, when we pray, we're praying to a God that we don't know. And then wondering why we don't see results. Because best case scenario, you're praying to a stranger we need to know who God is. Because God exists in this very odd sort of duality. On the one hand, he's our father. And he's personal and he's intimate and he's approachable and he makes himself that way on purpose because he wants us to come to him. He wants us to know and be known by him. On the other hand, he is completely and totally holy above all things. He is set apart. And just because God makes himself approachable does not mean that we can forget who he is or fail to acknowledge his infinite holiness. We're talking about the God who Moses goes up on Mount Sinai, wants to see God's face. God says, yeah, you can't do that. You'll die. So he puts Moses in a cave, puts his hand over and goes by. And Moses gets to see the fading passing of God's glory. 
Basically, he gets to see the place that God was after God left it. And just that causes him to fall down as if dead. And his face shined for weeks. They had to put a veil over it because it was so disturbing to people. That is the majesty and the wonder of God. And when we understand who he is, when we see the utter perfection that is God, it reminds us of how far we are from that. And so when we pray, when we start our prayers by recognizing who God is, what that does is that creates in our hearts a sort of holy humbling. It's when we understand the power of the glory, the wonder, and the majesty of God, it stirs in us a fearful awe that leads to faith, love, and obedience. Verse 6. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept your commandments, the statutes, the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. So Nehemiah learns that the people of God are suffering. And I want you to notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't go, God, why is this happening? Why are you letting this happen to your people? They rebuilt your temple. They tried to serve you. Why are you allowing them to suffer? That's not fair. That's not right. If you're such a good God, why are you letting bad things happen? Nehemiah doesn't blame God because he knows that God is not to blame. Nehemiah understands that the reason the people of God are suffering is because of what they have done. God has always been faithful to the covenant. It's Israel that was unfaithful. And so Nehemiah understands that the problems that the Israelites are facing, the problems that the people of God are facing are problems of their own making. Let me be clear. That does not mean that every time something bad happens to you, every struggle and every hardship in your life, that that is God punishing you or that is a direct result of something that you have done wrong. What it means is that all of the pain, all of the hardship, all of the struggle that exists in this life is the result of not God's unfaithfulness, but of our unfaithfulness. And here is where our love of independence and our individualistic thinking gets in the way. We think of sin as an individual thing. Your sin is your problem. My sin is my problem. You keep your sin away from me, I'll keep my sin away from you, and we can just avoid each other. What you do wrong had nothing to do with me. Leave me out of it. I don't want any part of it. It's not my fault, not my responsibility, not my problem, because we think it's just about us. And in part, that's true. God does hold us accountable. Each person will be held accountable for what they do and don't do. But just because we are a society that worships individualism doesn't mean that spiritually that's how we are going to be treated. See, sin is not just an individual problem. Because we are a corporate people. We are a community, a body. 
joined together by our love for Jesus. And when the Bible, both Old and New Testament, refers to the people of God, it refers to us as a group, as a single entity made up of all the different people. It is a corporate individual. And as the people of God, we have a communal identity, we have communal beliefs, we have communal behaviors, we have a communal purpose, and we have communal sins. Just as your hand is not the foot, there are things that happen to the body that affect them both. Because you are not an independent entity. You are an individual part of a corporate body. And when God looks at us, he doesn't just look at us as the individual. He doesn't just look at what we have done or not done. He looks also at us as a people, as a whole. At which point you go, you know what? I don't like that. That's dumb. I don't want anything to do with that. I'm going to deal with me. I shouldn't have to deal with that guy's problems and that person's messed up stuff. That's not on me. It's not fair. It's not right. It's not just. I don't think that's how it should be. And I wonder, I totally hear where you're coming from. So let me just say, with all gentleness and affection, it really doesn't matter what you think. Because you're not God, and you're not his supervisor. Regardless of how you feel, regardless of what you think, God deals with his people both as individuals and as a communal body. So what do we do with that? What does Nehemiah do? He starts off with prayer. And the first thing he does in his prayer is he acknowledges, he recognizes the glory and the majesty of God. And immediately after that, he begins confessing the sin of the people. Now notice, he's not here pointing fingers and being petty. He's not posting some angry Facebook rant about how we've destroyed the nation and we've messed everything up and we need to go back to the good old days when he was a kid and life was better. He's not doing that. He's addressing the overall condition of the people of God and addressing and acknowledging their lack of faithfulness to the commands of God. And he's including himself in the process. Right? He's not saying, oh, look at how all these people have done wrong. He says, no, no, this is a we thing. And then after he's done addressing everybody, he focuses in on himself. I have been unfaithful. I have been corrupt. I have been negligent in my following of your commands. Nehemiah confesses his own sin, which is a lost art in the church. They don't really confess anymore. I mean, we're really quick to confess other people's sins. And it's okay, it's not gossip because we call it prayer requests. We're really quick to point out the faults and the flaws and the imperfections in others, but we're really slow to acknowledge or accept them in ourselves. And 1 John 3 says, if we are faithful to confess, he is faithful to forgive. Transformation begins with the confession of sins. In 2 Chronicles 7, God tells King Solomon that if his people will humble themselves, pray, seek his face, and turn from their wicked ways, that he will hear their prayers, forgive their sins, and heal their lands. Verse 8. 
Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. It seems kind of weird to ask God to remember, right? Because God's omniscient which means literally he knows everything and thus is capable of forgetting. But this is not a reminder. It's a plea. He is pleading with God to continue to be faithful to his people, despite the fact that his people have been continually unfaithful to him. What he's saying is, God, don't give up on us. Don't quit on us. He's pleading. He is begging God to forgive his people. But if you look at the prayer, look at how it's worded. Look at the language describing sin and repentance. It is not individual sin. It is not individual repentance. He is praying for the people as a whole. He is seeking forgiveness and repentance for the people as a whole. Because we are not just individuals. We are part of something larger, of something greater. And we are all in this together. When we as the people of God are unfaithful to the commands of God, we fall under his judgment. When we as the people of God are fruitful in our pursuit of God, we fall under his blessing. But our actions don't just affect us. And because you are not an independent entity, but rather an individual part of a body, we have a responsibility not just to God, but to each other to confess, to repent to forgive, and to obey. Because our actions don't just affect us. Which point? We look at the church and we go, man, that's messy. These people, they're broken. They're imperfect. I don't want anything to do with that. You know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to avoid the community altogether, and that way all their mess doesn't get on me. Because you know what? You don't have to go to church to be a Christian. You're absolutely right. You do not have to go to church to be a Christian any more than a fish has to be in water to be a fish. <laughs> the idea that you can love Jesus and choose to willfully be distanced from his people would be laughable if it wasn't so sad. And when we propose this idea the proponents of it demonstrate a radical lack of understanding both of God and of his word. Jesus calls the church his bride. So let me tell you how this works. If you come to me and you're like, hey man, you're cool. I want to hang out with you. I want to be friends. Let's get together all the time. But the thing is, I don't really like your wife. Let me be really clear. This is super hypothetical and has literally never happened. The opposite has happened, right? But this way, I'm just living out a dream right now because I get to control the narrative. Right? My wife met my family for the first time when we were dating, and they're like, yeah, we like her. We're not so sure about you. So if you mess it up, she's in, you're out. Have a nice day. 
that's kind of, so this is super hypothetical, but guess what? In this situation, hard pass. You don't get me without my wife. We are married. We are a package deal. Jesus calls the church his bride. You don't get one without the other. You can't love Jesus and not love his church. I get it. The church is imperfect. It's easy to love a perfect Jesus. Hard to love the imperfect people who are his bride, but that is the deal. Because they come together. You cannot love Jesus and not love his church. You cannot love Jesus and willfully choose to remain separated from his people. But for all the baggage and the mess that the community of believers bring, they also bring gifts. See, throughout the Bible, we see that there is power and impact in community. That it affects our prayer, our faith, our service. That it challenges us, that it encourages us, that it grows us in ways that we would never do on our own. What if we were a place that did that? What if we were a place that devoted ourselves to praying for one another? What if we were a place that devoted ourselves to encouraging one another and challenging one another and coming alongside one another to help each other grow? What if we were a place where those who were more mature in Jesus deliberately sought out those who were less mature in Jesus and said, hey, come follow me as I follow Christ and let's go through this walk with Jesus together because we as the people of God were so focused on the mission of God that we were willing to step outside of our comfort zones, that we were willing to sacrifice our time to help people grow in him and get to know him. To which you go, man, that's really cool. I like that idea, but you know what? What do I do? I'm not special. I don't know all this stuff. I'm not. Nehemiah was not a prophet. Nehemiah was not a priest. Nehemiah was not a king. Nehemiah had no theological training. He lived in a pagan culture and was surrounded by pagan people. Sorry, what were you saying? You know what else Nehemiah didn't have? A call from God. Noah gets a call from God. Build a boat. Abraham gets a call from God. Go to the land I'll show you. I'll make you the father of many nations. Moses gets a call from God. My people are suffering. I'm going to send you to rescue them. David gets a call from God. You're going to be my king. You know what doesn't show up in the book of Nehemiah? And the Lord said... Nehemiah does not get a call from God. He's a regular guy who loves God and desires to honor him. So he prays because he knows he needs God. He knows he can't do it alone. He's not meant to. See, the book of Nehemiah, one of its primary themes is the power of the people of God working together to build the kingdom of God for the glory of God. So Nehemiah confesses the sin of God's people. He confesses that they have not been faithful to the command of God. Have you? Jesus gave you a mission. Make disciples of all nations. Have you been faithful to that mission? Jesus gave you a purpose to know him and to grow in him. Have you been faithful to that purpose? Jesus died on the cross for your sin and for my sin 
took the penalty for sin, took the wrath of God upon himself to spare us from it so that we could walk in the newness of life. Have you been faithful to walk in that new life or do you continue to walk in the old one? Jesus gave you a command to love him most, to seek him first, to place him above all things, seek him above all things, focus on him above all things. Have you been faithful to that command? Which may be the reason that we don't see God move the same way that we see it in Scripture. Maybe the reason that we don't feel the fullness of His grace and His power and His freedom and His joy is because we keep trying to skip the first step. If we are faithful to confess, then He is faithful to forgive. The joy, the peace, the hope of walking with Jesus begins with confession. Church, I've got good news. We do not serve a powerful God. We serve an all-powerful God. We do not serve a God who can do some things. We serve a God who can do all things, who has power over all things, and who makes all things possible. And sometimes what happens is the fear and our enemy gets in our heads like, you can't do it. You're not qualified. Think about what you've done. Think about where you've been. It doesn't matter. Because Jesus is in the business of making things new. His work is transformation. His work is change. And change, godly change, it begins with prayer. It begins with confession, with repentance, not just as individuals, but as a community. So the worship team's gonna come out. On your chairs when you came in, there should have been a prayer guide. That's the big sheet of paper. Uh, we're using those for the rest of the year so that we can pray together as a community as we prepare ourselves for what God is doing here. I'm going to ask you to keep that with you, to pray with that every day so that we as the people of God can be of one heart, of one mind, and one purpose as we get ourselves ready for his work. So take that with you, but for right now, set it off to the side. What you need right now is a note card and a pen. First instruction, do not write your name on this card. Some of you are tempted to write your name on the card because I told you not to. I love you. You're my people. Don't write your name on the card. Don't write anyone's name on this card over the entire process. Don't write anything that could specifically give away your identity or someone else's identity. What we're going to do this morning. And I've asked the worship team to take a lead in this, so they have already filled this out, and they're going to come, and they're going to drop them in these boxes here, and they're going to head back and get ready. So if you guys want to do that now, I want you to write on this card the greatest sin that you struggle with, the sin that keeps you in the most bondage, the thing that if you could confess one thing to God, experience freedom from one thing in your life, the one thing that hinders your relationship with God the most, write it on this card. You don't have to be massively specific. You don't have to get into massive detail, but write enough to explain what it is. And before you start looking around, I get it, curiosity, keep your little wretched sinful eyes to yourself, okay? Look at your card, especially if you're sitting next to your spouse or your kids. Do not look at their card. Everybody gets the freedom to confess this with confidence that they're not going to get in trouble for it, okay? Write it down. Focus on your card. Don't worry about their card. I want everybody to write down on this card what that area is. Once you finish writing it down, you can come up and you can drop it in these boxes as soon as you're ready. If I'm still talking right now and you're done, cut, fold the card, 
drop it in the box. I'm going to explain what we're going to do with these afterwards, so don't leave. But once we're done, the band is going to lead us, the worship team is going to lead us in song. And I'm going to come back out and I'm going to explain what happens with these. Please also, if you can, don't take the pens. We are going to need those for second service because we don't have 10,000 of them apparently. Um, What I want to experience and what I want you to see, the reason that we're going to kind of do this is a little bit different and a little bit more interactive, but the only way for us to really understand the power of things is for us to sometimes participate in those things. And so we're going to do that. We're going to practice and see. I'll, I'll explain the rest when we're done. So the band's going to lead us in worship. And at any time during the song, bring your cards up. Once your card's up, worship. And then I'll be back up to explain. <laughs>